This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and we are still dealing with that all-covering title, the finished work, and particularly one or two references to the tabernacle on our journey. As these recording, as these uh, little studies are being recorded, and the tabernacle has been given a consideration and is on tape, I'm not proposing to go step by step, because we are doing that once again on the Sunday afternoons, and so I felt that it would not be wise to duplicate or triplicate, perhaps I better remember the civil servants who may be here, uh, too much. And so I want to just give you a, a little survey of this tabernacle, and pass on to things which are associated with it. First of all, you will notice this chart. There is the lampstand, which is called a candlestick in the old in the New Testament. Even though they had the word lamp in front of them, and even though they had the, the statement that they had to put oil in the lamps, they had no difficulty in calling it a lampstand, a candlestick, because that had ceased to have its meaning as candlestick, but a light of some sort. You want to be prepared for words to outlive their meaning and still be current coin. There was light in that uh, tabernacle, but it was lit by the high priest and it was sustained by olive oil, which is a type of the Holy Spirit. We remember that. And then there was also a table of showbread. It was completely... Uh, wood covered by gold and a cloth of blue and then the twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes of, of the people of Israel were placed upon it and it was called the, be- the bread of presence, show bread. And the idea is, as it's stamped upon it, it's called the continual bread and it should never be omitted. And yet, even though when the split came between the kingdoms and Judah and Benjamin remained at Jerusalem under one king and the ten tribes went off and had their city in Samaria, God never said, well, move ten loaves off the table, only represent two now. Twelve were always there. It's a continual bread. And then, on top of that, and I mean on top of that in more senses than one, There was all the frankincense. Those loaves were completely hidden. They were covered with frankincense. And that had a wonderful fragrant smell and the word frankincense in the Hebrew language means something white. I think you can agree with me that that's got a good deal of typical teaching for us. We are in the presence of God but we are covered with something white and something very fragrant. And the reference on the table to Philippians is that where you read with the bowls and the spoons to cover with all, the revised has adopted the marginal references all the way through and it means to pour out as a drink offering. As the Apostle Paul said, I am now about to be offered. Well then that means to say we've come down to the um, great altar at the gate. This uh, tabernacle was within an enclosed area. 
and uh, it was a fair walk right round the the walls or the uh, court made of hangings. But there was one gate, and in one passage it is translated gate, uh, Exodus thirty five seventeen. Other places it's translated door. I suppose it's natural for us to think of Christ again. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in. I am the true and living way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But there's something more to it than that. When you came to that gate, you didn't just walk straight into the tabernacle. Oh no. You were confronted with a, a sacrificial altar nine feet square. Now, don't bind me down to a few inches because nobody is perfectly certain as to the exact length of a cubit. But near enough for our purpose. Nine feet stood in the way. Purposely. You couldn't get by. And that's a, a word that condemns all so-called gospels that would evade or bypass the one essential feature that makes the gospel of the grace of God what it is. That it is based upon the offering of Christ. No idea of turning over a new leaf, no better housing or greater facilities for education, none of those things and all put together will ever suffice to bring a sinner back into a right relationship with God. And so we have this brazen altar. There are one or two things which are interesting, which are thrown in, you might notice, that the labour, or the um, the uh, general furniture of the tabernacle, like the uh, mercy seat and the ark and the uh, altar of incense, uh, they were subscribed willingly by the offerers, willingly. But the two which have to do with sacrificial or ceremonial cleansing before you're ready to go in to that tabernacle properly, they were associated with a sin of men and a sin of women. It's rather strange that they are associated like that, and perhaps you might like to make sure of that. Would you look at two passages? Uh, Exodus 38, verse 8. This is now the construction of this altar, which stood there. Verse 8. And he made the laver of brass, and the foot of it of brass, of the looking glasses of the women assembling by troops, as I think the margin puts it, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if you remember the way in which the sons of Eli the priest sunk so low with regard to these things, there's a statement that that labor, which was for the cleansing of the priest in his offering, was made now, you say, looking glasses. Well, the authorised version translators knew full well that you couldn't make a brass thing out of a glass thing. But a looking glass in their day was often 
a piece of metal, the same as it is today sometimes. And it was all the time uh, in the early days of Greece. So the brazen mirrors of the brazen women, if I may so put it, were melted down and made into this symbol of cleansing. But what about the men? If we look at Numbers 16.39, we get another suggestion that we're on the right track. Number 16.39. Supposing we read uh, verse 36, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eliezer the son of Aaron the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning, and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. The censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for the covering of the altar. So you see, the two articles which were there in the outer court, the one, the altar of sacrifice, the other, the daily cleansing, both had reminders of the utter failure of man and woman, that is to say, all mankind, in connection with access to God. I don't think that's accidental, isn't it? It's written and specified, and I thought you ought to have that chapter and verse before you. Well, now, there's no need for me in this meeting, I trust, and for those who are associated with our work to stress, that there is no possibility of acceptance with God that in any measure bypasses the great sacrifice that he offered once and forever. There are those, of course, who have become so fastidious and so modern that they look upon all these Old Testament types as relics of the past. And uh, they preach a gospel that would have satisfied Cain, but would not have satisfied Abel. And what satisfied Abel satisfied God. And what satisfies God should satisfy us. Now on this altar, in the gateway, barring access, there were offered five different offerings. Now I propose to go on with my studies with the folks who attend the Sunday afternoon and uh, continue looking at the different aspects of the tabernacle. But I propose that we now concentrate our attention for the next few weeks after today as to what these five different offerings in Leviticus represent. Because one of the things we glory in in the scripture is that there's one sacrifice for sins forever. And yet, there are five different offerings. There's the whole bird offering, there's the meal offering, there's the peace offering, there's the sin offering, there's a trespass offering. Now, unless you say to me, well, that's all the thing of the past. But you find them gathered up in the New Testament from one aspect or the other in the great offering of Christ. He was made sin for us, who knew no sin. We have peace through the blood of his cross. And just a word on this paper in front of me reminds this poor old memory of mine, which forgets more than it remembers just now. I've told you before that about oh, 16 years or more ago, 
we have a little witness down at the Jewish quarter of the East End of London. And on one occasion I put in the window the text in large letters, without the shedding of blood, no remission. To remind the Jew, as some of them have woke up to see as I've been reading some of their own comments, that with all their attendance at synagogue, and all the observance of the feasts and the fasts, the one thing that's omitted in every one of them is what God enjoyed. They dare not and they cannot offer a sacrifice. So I put that in the window to stimulate perhaps an inquiry. And one little child looked at it and he yelled out to his pals in this place, he says, don't go in there, it says, without the shedding of blood, no admission. Well, that can be written over the gate of the court of the tabernacle. If you were one of that type of person who refused to recognise the necessity, you see, in Leviticus we shall discover that it says that the blood is the vehicle of the soul. Now, that doesn't go with ordinary psychology, but we're not bothering about that. And it is the blood that makes atonement because of the soul. He poured out his soul unto death when he shed his blood. So you see, there's something in it, and it's well for us to be aware of these things and use scriptural phraseology. Will you turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 10 and just observe the way in which the writer to these Hebrews has spoken about the offering of Christ and then our time will be quite up. Chapter 10 For the law having a shadow of good things to come so that's one thing to remember they have a shadow they're on purpose as we read elsewhere the Holy Ghost this signifying in chapter 9 they had a purpose and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year make the comers thereunto perfect unto perpetuity. Now you say, where do you get that from? The word continually does not belong to the words year by year, but belongs to the remaining part of the sentence, as you can see by the repetition that we have in this same chapter, um, verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever. See? Now that's put together in its right place. Perfected unto perpetuity. One of the strongest words in the Greek language for eternity. That's where we stand, friends. A finished work. So finished that it'll never need to be repeated. Shall we notice that? It says... Um, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever. One offering. He goes back on the story, and in uh, verse 8 he says, above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, you notice the apostle didn't hesitate to give you the titles and differences in these various aspects of the offerings which we propose to do. Neither has pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first covenant, that he may establish the second. 
by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's the difference. And so it says, if you'll glance back again, um, verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a remembrance. Now let's get the blessed fact that it says further down in this uh, this chapter, verse 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Never come up again. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So we do well to realise it was once. But it was once. If it had never been never been offered, we should still be without a saviour. But having once been offered, and once accepted, this has gone deeper than the external cleansing. It has touched the conscience, and we now are accepted in the beloved. So just one more glimpse at the little table with its showbread. Inside, when that that great sacrifice is offered outside, inside we have all God's people never altering, even though they are to be punished by him with severity in the wilderness. Even though thousands of them died because of their rebellion. God never said to Moses, take away two or three of the loaves that represent the tribes that failed. No. No. This doesn't excuse sin, but it does magnify the wonder of the grace of God that has put you and me in his presence covered us with all the acceptance of Christ and we acknowledge with gratitude that he is the door, the way, the one offering, the cleansing and the going on cleansing us day by day as it says we walk in the light and now we are clean through the word that he has spoken unto us and he becomes the light in which we serve and witness until travelling days are done.